Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Today in Space. Uh, this episode, we are going to be talking about the Trappist-1 discovery. That's the whole episode here. We're just going to uh, give you as, as much important information, kind of break it down. Uh, what does the discovery actually mean? What does some of the stuff they're talking about actually mean? And really dive into it so that we can better understand, and, and maybe this will be a place you can uh, someone will come to uh, if they're looking to find out more. Because that's what we're trying to do here today in space. Uh, we're trying to help uh, spread science, uh, as we say, spread love, uh, but really just kind of spread uh, a science in a different way. So I hope you guys are enjoying what we're doing here. And I uh, appreciate everyone who's uh, reached out, uh, listeners wondering uh, where I've been at. Uh, I have been uh, elbows deep with the, the 3D printing company, uh, AG3D. So uh, it's going really well. But it uh, requires more time uh, than, obviously, I originally anticipated. <laughs> so uh, the podcast just hasn't uh, been coming out on a weekly basis. But I'm, I got my hands on the reins, and we're going to get uh, back into the swing of things here. Um, I've got a bunch of fun stuff planned. Um, this week, we're going to put out this week's episode uh, about the Trappist-1 discovery. I am going to PAX East conference uh, next week. Friday, so I'm gonna tell you guys what I saw there, all the cool uh, video game stuff that uh, we saw over there. Uh, I'm going with uh, my brother and uh, some of his friends, so uh, hopefully I'll meet some interesting people and be able to bring back. There's got to be some space games out there, so <laughs> uh, if not, I'm just gonna have a good time, and we'll come back next week because we've got a ton of stuff to talk about between you know all the all the crazy shit that's happened in the last few weeks from this discovery of three possible planets with water within you know uh, throwing a ball's distance of earth uh, to um the crazy announcement with SpaceX and that they're going to send two space tourists who who came to them who talked to them about paying for a trip to go around the moon crazy shit uh, and then there's also uh, some uh, space policy uh, to discuss and uh, new things with the current administration. So we're not going to worry about that stuff now. This week is all about Trappist-1. So uh, we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about the history of it, the different discoveries, how we found those discoveries, and break down what the discovery actually means. Can we actually go to this system? Uh, is it worth it? Are we going to actually see it? Is it too far away for that? Are we only going to see artists' renditionings? Or are we actually going to be able to, possibly if we need to or if we want to, go and find alien life there, intelligent life? Uh, we'll see. And as always, we're going to uh, hear my crazy thoughts on it. So <laughs> without further ado, let's start this show and get into Trappist-1. And to help set the mood I'm looking for here, I did actually, on the day it was released, sit down, spent a few hours, and put together a trap beat because I couldn't help myself. But here it is, Trappist 1.
Trappist One is a discovery that has basically ended up with us finding seven terrestrial planets, rocky planets, orbiting an ultra-cool dwarf star. Uh, if you compared it to our sun, which would be the size of a basketball, the Trappist One ultra-cool dwarf star, which is smaller, would be about the size of a golf ball. So these planets that are orbiting Trappist One star are about Earth-sized for the most part. They're all pretty much Earth-sized planets, which is, is, is crazy because we haven't... We just saw... Uh, recently, We had there was a discovery. I don't remember what the name of it was, but it was like Earth 2. Everyone was freaking out online about Earth 2. Like, oh my God, Earth 2. Like, this is so crazy. But th there was no way we were going to get to Earth 2. So it was kind of like, oh, cool. There's a planet uh, so far away we can't even get there without fusion. So you know, cool. I guess that's fun. But this discovery is crazy because it's within 12 parsecs, which, uh, as far as a distance goes, like how long would it take us to get there? Parsecs like 3.6 light years. Um, so Trappist one is about 40 light years away. So if we, if we went the speed of light, we'd get there at 39 to 40 years. But if, just to give you a comparison, like how far that actually is, I, it was a great comparison in the broadcast video when they first released the information that if we took uh, a jet plane, it would take us, if we're going that speed, it would take us 44 million years to get there. So even though it's super close, I mean, compared to Andromeda, which is, hold on, I'll look it up here. Okay, 2.537 million light years away then yeah, this is really close. This is accessible. This is within our reach. And once the James Webb telescope gets into space, actually launches, I think sometime this year, maybe next year, if it gets delayed, once that's operational and in space, we're going to, that's going to be one of the greatest things. It's going to be, it's, it's, it's first real test is going to be probing this system and actually giving us a, an even closer look. So, but let's talk about what we've actually seen so far. Uh, how did we find it? You know, how did how did this even happen? And it's 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 a pretty interesting story. You know, we'll we'll do the short version here uh, for the sake of time. But essentially, there's a team uh, called Trappist, and I don't remember if I said what that uh, means or stands for in the intro. I'll say it again. Uh, it's for the Transiting Planets and Planetesimals Small Telescope or T-R-A-P-P-I-S-T, and that's in Chile. And the story kind of all starts back in May of 2016 when the researchers that were using TRAPPIST announced that they had discovered three planets in the system. This is according to uh, a NASA.gov, the press release, on February 22nd uh, for this discovery. And when they discovered that in May 2016, they ended up getting assisted uh, from that discovery because people were really excited. Okay, let's let's keep looking. We found terrestrial planets. Oh, my God. Let's keep looking. They, assisted, they were assisted with several ground-based telescopes, including the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope, Spitzer. And Spitzer confirmed the existence of two of, the th of those planets, of the three that were initially discovered, and then ended up finding five additional ones. Uh, Spitzer is really interesting it's it's actually a an infrared 
telescope. So the interesting thing about the TRAPPIST-1 system is in visible light, it's not very bright. But in infrared, it's extremely bright. So having uh, Spitzer, which has was launched in 2003, was the first time I was doing research. So it's been out there for 14 years. And Spitzer helped them uh, completely go over the top with this discovery. I mean, um, and it's really interesting. Spitzer was originally not designed to, like, look for exoplanets. So what they had to do was... Okay, so get this. This is crazy. I, I had to, I wrote this down because it just blew my mind, the, the level of complication that went into this ha- actually happening. The feat that was... Uh, actually accomplished. So TRAPPIST-1 is located a little over one astronomical unit from Earth, which is the distance from uh, us, like Earth, to the sun. That's one astronomical unit because we decided it's our unit. (laughs) But so how do you fix or adjust or change something that's one astronomical unit away from you in space. Can't launch humans there. We haven't done that since the 70s. Past, you know, well, we haven't lost anyone at 1 AU yet, but um, anyways, too far to send people there, right? Way too far to send people. So they had to adjust the technology on board the Spitzer telescope from Earth through space. And what they ended up doing was fixing it so that the Spitzer telescope could actually detect planet brightness, or sorry, uh, star brightness, a thousand times more precisely than it was done bef- than what they thought it was capable of doing, which is is just crazy. I mean, they 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 pers- they precisioned the shit out of that thing i mean a thousand times more precise i mean that's crazy now uh, precise does not mean that it's actually accurate or correct you know uh, if you've learned the difference between precision and accuracy accuracy is how close you are to the right answer and precision is how um well, without using the word precise how detailed of a number you're going to give. So uh, higher precision means more points after the decimal. It means uh, really like, no, less. the less you round and the more you are to the exact number, that's more precise. You know, if you round, um, 1.55 is precise compared to 1. Get it? So um, what they were able to do was make the TRAPPIST telescope a thousand times more precise so they could get even closer readings, which is how they were able to detect the mass of these planets. It was how they were able to detect the radii of these planets. And uh, there was something else. I don't remember. Oh, and the radiation that these planets were receiving uh, from the ultra cool dwarf star. So uh, pretty crazy, crazy stuff. Now, uh, one of the interesting things is actually what the data looks like for them to have gotten this observation, because all, all the pictures you're going to see now, um, you, you may have seen this with the Pluto uh, discovery with New Horizons. Before we got to Pluto, we had this artist's conception of what Pluto looked like, and that's what everyone thought Pluto looked like. It was either that or what Pluto looked like in, you know, the Bugs Bunny cartoons, you know. Um, 
those are the only things we knew what Pluto looked like. Now that we've flown by the system and taken pictures of the entire system, we know gener- we know what Pluto looks like now. So, you know, we never assume that heart-shaped feature on the surface. Um, we only realize that now. So all the things you're seeing, it's really easy to think that the telescopes gave them that picture. Like, almost like it's, we're... <laughs> You know that scene in Star Wars where the Death Star is like getting into position, and it has that like that the multiple circles that are like lining up. <laughs> I, I always think of like like that's what everyone thinks scientists are looking at. They're just sitting in front of a console with a big red button or like a scroll wheel, and they're just like looking at things. Like that's not what the real life is like. Like the real life, it's literally like a graph. You know, and and so what they were able to do was the way they find planets around these stars is they look at the star because it's the only thing with visible light that we can actually focus on. And we know that it's there. Right. So you have to look at the star first. And now this is where the trick comes in. Um, You got to make sure that everything is orbiting in the same plane as you are. And that's important later. I'll just explain. Like you want all the planets to be orbiting in front of the sun that you're looking at so that you can see it, you know? Um, and that's really important because that's how the graph data shows that there's a planet. Um, there, there's, there's great video footage of it um, in the links. You'll find them in the space links in this week's episode or in the show notes. But in the video, for sure, of the broadcast, uh, at one point, probably about 10, a little after 10 minutes in, they show what the data actually looks like. And it's, it's basically, have you ever seen what... Uh, voice signatures look when you record it to something like it's a bunch of squiggly lines or uh, you know what let's just take something even simpler is you all seen the heart monitors where it shows like the ticker uh, bounces up and down and makes a squiggly line for your heartbeat so basically you're looking at a sun and that's happening all the time whenever you're seeing the brightness of the star because that's what the Spitzer telescope was taking was the brightness, right? That's why they amplify the precision up to a thousand times to look at the star. And what they would see are these giant blank spots. You know, they, it just looks like a dark area where you're like, okay, where'd the sunlight go? And the thickness of those dark bands is actually you're, you're, you're taking the shadow of those planets. And so you watch it. Uh, the video they showed, it showed them watching for 14 days, 15 days, something like that. And so what they do is they look at this data and they, they crunch it time and time again to see, is there a pattern to this? Because, you know, if the, if the 1.2 inch band, we'll just say, I don't know what the dimensions are. We'll just say if the 1.2 inch band repeats every seven days, then you know that the orbital period is seven days. And from that they can actually tell the radius and um, through other observations I think Hubble was able to show whether the atmospheres were oh I forget what it was oh uh, they're looking for high hydrogen helium content in the atmosphere and I think it was the reflectivity I'm not 100% sure on this one call me out on it if I'm wrong let me know what it actually is but I think they were talking about like the reflectivity, like as long as they see certain things reflecting off the atmosphere from the sunlight, from the ultra cool dwarf star, then they can actually tell what elements are there because of the diffraction. So that's, that's pretty cool. But 
it's a wild way to discover things. And it's, it's interesting because I don't think a lot of people actually know <laughs> like what, what does it look like to look for planets? You know, I, I definitely, I, I, you know, I, I originally thought, you know, before I, I knew a little bit more and I'd gone to school for this stuff, um, that, yeah, it was kind of like that Star Wars thing. You know, you got a guy who's at a telescope. What am I going to look at today? I don't know. Um, let's point it over here. Yeah, I haven't done over there in a while. Um, obviously, that would be incredibly inefficient, but... Uh, oh, well. Moving on. One of the next uh, great discoveries uh, of what this TRAPPIST-1 system looks like, uh, the, let's, let's go into a little bit about the actual planets that could sustain life. Those ones are TRAPPIST-1e, TRAPPIST-1f, and TRAPPIST-1g. These are the three that are within that habitable zone. Now, habitable zone, Goldilocks zone, Goldilocks area, all these words are basically, if I'm going to paraphrase it, because that's pretty much what I do in the show, um, is the Goldilocks zone is like where the porridge is just right, right? That's literally where it's from, is from the tale of uh, Goldilocks and the three bears, right? So one porch is too hot. And actually you have this whole, the whole Goldilocks story in this system. You know, there are planets that are so close to the sun that it's too hot. They're sizzling, you know? Um, there are three of them from our observations. They're within the Goldilocks zone, which is just right. And then there are three, uh, let's see. Well, the other ones are in the cold part, so it's obviously too cold. So uh, nursery rhyme aside, uh, it's actually pretty relevant in this case. So if you hear that term, that's all that means, is if you're in the habitable zone or Goldilocks zone, it's the amount of sunlight and warmth and uh, temperature stability to have life. That's what they're basing it off of, so... And I think it's based off of, I'm not 100% sure, I, I didn't have the time to research this, but I would assume, because some of the discovery, they talk about the amount of light that that system sees. So you've got to beg the question, if we're talking about two totally different sized suns and two different suns altogether, one's uh, a, well, I'm not sure what, our sun is, is at the stage where it is right now. Wow, I don't know what, a regular sun, I guess. We'll, we'll just go there for it right now. So a regular sun like ours, it's about the size of a basketball. The ultra-cool dwarf star, size of a golf ball. So it's obviously, it's, in its name, it's a lot cooler. So it's okay if these planets are really close. Remember, um, one of these planets actually has a nine-day orbit, which is a TRAPPIST-1F. So it takes nine days to circle that sun. So it's a lot closer. So it begs to differ. Is it is it really about radiation? Is it, is it about the exposure of sunlight compared to the distance you are? Uh, which is kind of what I think is is most of the formula. Again, if I'm going to paraphrase it, I think that you know, obviously, if you're spending, if you have a slower orbit, that's going to matter. But let's not get too deep into that. Um, I'm actually making my head hurt doing that. So let's move on. So, uh, one of the most interesting facts before we get into all these planets, because I want you to have a, a, a mental image of what this thing looks like. So, all of these planets are tidally locked. So, they're not... Their f one side is always facing 
the sun. Just like our moon is always, our face of the moon is always the same face that faces us as it orbits us, right? So that's the case with all seven of these planets. They're all tidally locked. So the same surface always faces the sun and there's always a cool side. It's the same side. So uh, if you've ever seen that Futurama episode where uh, Professor Katz stops the rotation of the Earth and transfers the rotational energy uh, to his planet, which was tidally locked, that's uh, a great image. If you haven't seen that episode, go watch that. Um, I think it's that darn Katz. I don't know why I know that. <laughs> so that's essentially what all these planets are. So... One side is all light, one side is all dark, which means you're going to have a very different system. Um, one of the interesting um, little things that the concept drawings did, that the artists did for those concept drawings, is they show this kind of belt of what looks like clouds or even water um, in some cases where it's right in the middle, right where the the dawn slash dark line meets, right? So right where the light and dark line meets on the planet is where all these, you know, I would guess, tumultuous storms or, or things are leading. And that's going to be a really interesting system to learn about. You know, we'd be able to learn more about what a tidally locked system actually means. You know, one of the beautiful things of the way Earth is is, is its rotation, how it seems, seems to help maintain the temperatures on earth, you know, I mean, for us, the way we've developed and the, the point of evolution that we're at all life as we know, it has been on a planet where it's slowly cooking. It's slowly rotating. It's a rotisserie, you know, it's, it's not cooking one side too dark. It's really just doing it just right. Um, it'll be interesting to see, can, can you have habitable life around that? I guess it's possible if, it is an ultra-cool dwarf star. That might actually make a big difference. Um, it's an interesting thought. Interesting thought. Let's, let's get more into facts. Okay. So, the TRAPPIST-1 system, the innermost exoplanet in the habitable zones, the one closest to the dwarf star, is TRAPPIST-1e. And that is the one that is very close inside Earth. It's uh, very, very similar. Um, it receives about the same amount of light uh, as Earth does, which is good. So the same amount of um, exposure and all that things as Earth does. And it could have this very similar temperatures to what we have on Earth, which would be very interesting. Um, I'm guessing when they, when they say that, um, they're probably talking about an overall temperature. I don't know if they'd be able to depict what one side uh, is like. But that I'm I'm still just kind of torn on that whole. That's gonna be. It's it's just it's it's like playing a different game. It's like playing poker and then switching to Texas Hold'em. Like it's not the same thing. So I'm I'm really interested to see what what people that have spent more time looking at this <laughs> than I have uh, have to think about what a system like that would be like. I guess we could probably look at the moon and figure it out. But I, I don't want to stay on that too long. Uh, next, the next further out planet, the one next in line, TRAPPIST-1F, uh, is a potentially water-rich world. And it's about the same size as Earth. It has a nine-day orbit. 
It receives as much sun in the nine-day orbit as Mars does in our own solar system. Now, I will say I, I'm not 100% sure what that means quite yet. <laughs> I was, uh, I've uh, tried to do it live, just spitballing, and I came up with like three different answers the three different times I tried it. So it's a really specific way to explain that. I'm not sure if they mean it receives as much sun in that time as Mars does, as if it's just as stable as Mars is, or does that mean there's more exposure, which means it could be more radiation? I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know how these things work. I'm just using the knowledge I have in my own head and making shit up. So <laughs> if you do have an answer for that, I would love to know. Um, please send me some kind of a link or explain it. I'd love love to know more. Uh, the last one in the habitable zone is TRAPPIST-1G. And TRAPPIST-1G is the largest planet in the TRAPPIST-1 system. It's 13% larger in, in radius than the Earth. And it receives as much light as the zone from Mars to the atmosphere, asteroid belt. So uh, definitely not as much sun. And, and definitely something that uh, I thought was interesting when I was learning about space travel and something I never even considered before, uh, just want to share. Like, the whole reason we don't use solar panels on a mission uh, farther out into space is because at a certain point, there's not enough sun for you to really do anything with it. Now, at that point, it, you know, you, you could still have solar panels. So you're not dangerously far away. Mars is not, in perspective of our solar system, Mars and Earth are in the same range. Um, it, once you get past, like the, the mission of Pluto, New Horizons, needs some kind of nuclear energy, some, you know, plutonium, uh, I think it was, was it pellets? Uranium pellets? Plutonium pellets? Would have been cool if it was plutonium pellets, right? I don't remember which one it was. But uh, radioactive pellets is what they used. And, and these things uh, helped power it because at those distances away from the sun, there's no other suns nearby. So if you had solar panels, you'd kind of be screwed because you, you, would run, you would get to the point where you couldn't charge up anymore. And then you'd run out of energy. So um, I just think it's, a, it's an interesting perspective when we talk about something complicated like how much sun does, you know, in comparison when there are two different stars and blah, blah, blah. So that's a very complicated subject. Um, I'm, I know they've gone through the work to describe it. And if uh, you guys have any problems with it, if you guys want to talk more about it, just let me know. I'd be more than happy to look into it more for you. Now, let's talk about some things to look forward to for this because uh, this is the beginning of this. We're not going to find out anything new for probably more than a year. That's my estimate. Um, not too much to back it up other than the fact that the James Webb Space Telescope hasn't launched yet. So that's that's really when we're going to learn a lot more, I think, uh, some real solid information. Um, so that's supposed to launch sometime this year, maybe 2018, beginning of 2018, I think. But essentially, give it a solid year. Uh, let James Webb space telescope get up there and then once it makes a discovery you probably won't hear anything about it until anything solid until at least six months afterwards that that's my guess that's my guess so uh we're looking at a little bit of time before we learn more about this but uh, a really cool thing that one of the uh, astronomers who's working on this 
they're working on this thing called Speculos, which what Speculos is going to do is, I, I believe it was with combination of ground and space-based telescopes, or at the very least, ground-based telescopes. What they're going to do is they're going to they're going to examine a thousand of the closer ultra-cool dwarf stars because uh, it was an interesting theory and something I think we should definitely um, keep as a theory for this show is if there's one, there's more. And so the idea behind that being if if we found one example of what we're talking about in, in the universe, even just in our solar system, then just by the pure infinite nature of infinity... You, you won't just have just one. There isn't just one. You know, there's a one, there's a 1.1, there's a 1.11, 1.25. You know, like, there's there's a whole bunch of different ones. So I think it's a very good step for, for this Speculos project to go through because if we found these rocky habitable planets, if we found seven of them near ultra-cool dwarf stars, then keep looking at ultra-cool dwarf stars because though and, and those aren't rare either. So, especially in the expanse of infinity that we call the universe, um, that's uh, another great place to look. Like, for instance, like, that's the whole reason we're not trying to look at the whole universe. It's the reason we're trying to look for places where there's water because that's, because ultimately, what, what are we trying to do with the universe? We're trying to find more life like us are, are we the only ones is this the only and that this now segues ourselves into <laughs> the alien part of this show so wow did i just really transition out of that really quickly didn't i i want to listen to what i just said all right that was pretty funny <laughs> uh it's been a while since i've been on the mic uh, i do miss it thank you guys for listening but anyways let, let's finish up the show we're almost at 35 minutes here so alien life could we find alien life on Trappist-1? Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, the question really isn't if we find alien life uh, as much as it's if we find alien life, what is it going to look like? Like, the chances of us finding a round, smooth, green-headed, big black-eyed alien are pretty small. That's a pretty specific thing to look for. Now, if we're just looking for any kind of life, any alien life, microbial life, which is, you know, what what we started off as, what we we have microbial life inside of us. Um, it, if we found that, yeah, that's that's definitely possible. And again, the right place to look for that is places where water is pooled. I mean, you know, in our depiction of how life started on Earth, you know, it was this, uh, I just remember this weird video depiction of what the early life looked like. And it just looked like a, a, like a bunch of nasty swamps, like just lava flowing in different places, just a, a shithole and this bubbling puddle of just gunk and it was just like this is where life started i don't remember where i saw this i'm sorry to take you guys down this hole <laughs> but that's always what i think of when when people are talking about microbe like finding microbial life we're gonna miss it we're not we're not gonna see it we're gonna think it looks like a shitty puddle and we're gonna walk away from it <laughs> 
But I mean, that's if we're talking about finding alien life, uh, that is finding alien life. If it's if it's um, microbial life, we've found it. We've we've now uh, found an example of life existing somewhere other than the planet that we live on, which and thriving life that would definitely be uh, the major discovery right would be finding thriving life now let's go so far into the future let's let's speculate here okay all right speculation time let's talk some future science bullshit okay let's say the james webb space telescope finds um indications of pooled water we can actually see it and there's even a question of there being plant life alive, uh, actual biology happening on the planet. We will mount a mission. I, I guarantee it. Um, the question will be, how do we do it? Because that would be really interesting. Does it spark? You know, do we do we jump off of the um, the giant wave that is right now? You know, um, right now we've got two movies that uh i don't remember what maybe it was last week i looked but two movies are space movies they're in the top blockbusters uh i don't think they're blockbusters as far as like the big big bucks coming like they're not they're not armageddon or they're not um you know a big blockbuster movie but they're making the most money right now out in the theaters two space movies i mean that's that's unheard of Uh, i think one of them was arrival and the other one was i don't remember what the other one was but you know two space movies making uh lots of money like people are really interested in this stuff right now so if we have a chance to find alien life do you think that brings people enough together to go look for it i don't know it would be really interesting um one of the major hurdles to doing that would be finding a way to go light speed um now let's say we we go light speed right we find a way we we because of space uh, in the vacuum of space, we're able to constantly accelerate. So we can find something that can constantly accelerate us towards the speed of light that will take a little while to start going the speed of light. Um, but once we start going, we're good. You know, we're talking 39 years, 40 years to get there. That's doable, I think. Now, the thing that's not doable at the moment is slowing down. <laughs> We would have to, once we start going the speed of light, I'm sorry to break it to you, but once we start going at the speed of light, we also have to find a way to slow down so that we could actually not only observe the the Trappist system, but potentially go down and visit the Trappist system. So I think uh, that's one of the many hurdles that we would have to do uh, and to accomplish and, and to jump over to actually be able to visit the system. And that, that's, that's exploring as much as it is settling. That's a problem. Um, obviously, having a warp drive would be fantastic, but we don't have an operational warp, warp drive at the moment. So you would need to have uh, some kind of plan um, to slow down. Now, just first thought that pops in my head is you do a ramp up and you do a ramp down. You know, you turn the spacecraft around. If you've got enough energy to go and accelerate to light speed, you're probably going to have enough energy to turn the spacecraft, which will take very minimal um, energy. Then you just need as much energy as you use to get yourself going as you need to slow yourself down. Um, 
So that that would be huge. Um, obviously, we would need something that's the equivalent of, of nuclear or fusion, um, some kind of readily available um, power source that's on board that we don't have to worry about filling. Um, that's definitely something we would need. Um, but as far as finding alien life, I, I as long as the alien life uh, has the same signatures as we do, um, then the technology we have will be able to detect it. Obviously, the thing... And this is, again, getting crazy. We're at the end of the episode, so here you go. Here's the crazy thoughts. Um, we we may not be able to detect this new life if it's not of the same structure as us. If the DNA is not, and I learned this from my genetics friends uh, on, on one of the episodes we did together, if the genetic structure of the DNA, if the structure of the DNA for alien life is not the same, then we're not going to, we don't have the equipment <laughs> to detect that life. So finding alien life gets even harder because in the scheme of infinity, the, uh, as far as a, as a betting person goes, uh, it's not a bad bet to bet that if there is life out there and it's different, it may just be structurally different than ours um, and actually different kind of life. Uh, but life nonetheless. But that's a discussion for another episode. So <laughs> that uh, ends this episode. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you learned something about the Trappist One discovery. And I hope uh, you enjoyed yourself. If I didn't already say that, wow. It has been too long since I've been on the mic, but I finally got here. It was a kind of a struggle getting back into it. Um, but we did it. Here's another episode. So again, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I wasn't screaming into the mic. Um, I was really excited. Uh, <laughs> so as always, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to check out uh, a whole bunch of stuff. You can check out uh, the Trappist trap beat that I made that's on our SoundCloud at Today in Space Podcast. You can uh, like our Facebook page at Today in Space Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at ELGR3CO. And you can also uh, get 25% off your first 3D print if you go to ag3dprinting.com. Sorry, ag3d-printing.com. And what we're trying to do is help bring your ideas to reality. You know, whatever it might be. I mean, I, I work on such varying projects. I mean, and the best way to kind of describe what I'm doing is bringing ideas into reality. Whether you have it written down on a piece, on, on a napkin, you just have a drawing or you already have like technical drawings. You have dimensions and you know what it is. You just need someone to make it, you know, either scenarios or anything in between. We're here to help make that happen. We do design services. I've been designing in CAD for seven years, super fast. And I know what I'm doing for the most part. And, uh, we can make 3d printed parts for you, full prototypes. Uh, even if you want to do small batch production, anything from like one part, to 5,000 parts. Like, we, we can make that happen. Uh, we have the uh, abilities over here at AG3D, and I want to get you guys into it. I want to get you guys into the future because 3D printing is the future. It's It can touch so many different parts of our lives that it's just going to take a little while before it really takes off. And, be you know, you want to be one of the, the people getting into this before it becomes a big thing. You don't want to be... One of those people who's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've been three D printing for years. Okay, don't tell, don't talk to me about three D printing. Okay, um, <laughs> check out ag3d-printing.com, and if you just want to get into three D printing and figure out what it's all about, go to my Instagram page at ag3dprinting. Uh, so yeah, make it easy for you. Uh, go there 
and you could check up on all the things I'm doing. Like I, I'm keeping track of all the little projects we're doing, all the little R and D things we're expanding our material base, what we can work with. Uh, we just worked, uh, started working with a new material called Tallman Alloy 910, which is this super strong material. I, I think it's it's got the strength of nylon and some copolyester, so it's a very strong 8100 PSI this thing is supposed to hold. Um, so that's tremendous. That is super strong. It's a lot better than any plastic I have, and we're starting to work with that. We're also starting to work with semi-flexible material, um, which is super strong, but it's also bending. Uh, it has bend where you need it. Um, great for things like uh, if you wanted to make um, something that goes around the wrist or something that's durable can take some beating, uh, that material is really good. And obviously, we've got the, the, the tried and true ABS and PLA. ABS being the plastic that works with Legos. Uh, it's got some strength, but it's also pretty brittle. Uh, and PLA, which has a little bit more give, uh, PLA stands for polylactic acid. Yes, lactic acid is the stuff that uh, you get in your muscles when you're tired after working out. But it's also a biopolymer made from corn, I believe. Um, but yeah, pretty cool stuff, man. That's what I'm doing on my off time. And I hope you are doing uh, just as well. Um, reach out if you guys want to... Uh, if you guys want anything specific for us to talk about, I know in the future here, like I said, next week I'm going to PAX East. I'll, I'll report what I find there. Hopefully we'll, we'll talk to some interesting people. Um, we've got a few uh, friends coming on soon. We're going to be doing some more interviews, and we're going to keep up with this new space race, guys. Seriously, this whole SpaceX thing, going to the moon as a private company is a massive step forward. So that is huge, and we're going to talk about that hopefully next week. So... Before that, I'm going to New Hampshire. I'm taking the weekend off from technology and enjoying myself with some friends. And I hope you enjoy yourself. And don't forget, spread love, spread science. Go out there and do what you do best, okay? Be at your best. Do the best you can, all right? All right, love you guys. Thanks for listening. See you next time.